Welcome to the Arts and Humanities podcast for the 25th of November 2007. This recording includes a seminar from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies recorded on November the 20th. Claire Squires will introduce Dr Danielle Fuller who talks about her research project Beyond the Book, Mass Reading Events in the UK, USA and Canada. Dr Danielle Fuller is based in the Department of American and Canadian Studies in the University of Birmingham and she's actually a senior lecturer in Canadian Studies, her particular speciality. But she also has particular interests in reading communities, writing communities and in publishing as well. And it's a particular project that um, she's been involved with, an AHRC, Arts and Humanities Research Council project that she's going to be talking to you about today um, called Beyond the Book and she will tell you lots more about that. So over to Danielle. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. Thanks Claire and um, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it was very fun for me to come here. Um, not least because before I got embroiled in being an academic I spent a brief period of time working uh, in a publishing house in the editorial department so that really was one of the things that got me very interested in cultural production and publishing particularly and along the years I have been involved with investigating writing communities in various parts of Canada and more recently with this project um, I've become slightly obsessed with readers and uh, reading communities. Um, Claire told me that many of you are in the throes of determining projects that you will do as part of your MA programs and so this is very geared up I hope, to helping you think about things like what might my project look like, um, what kinds of methods could I use, how do you go about designing a project. So I'm going to use our project as a kind of model or exemplum for some of the kinds of processes that I think are helpful to go through when you're trying to uh, articulate um, your project question and also think about um, modes of investigation and the reasons why you want to uh, investigate what you want to investigate. So, I started with this kind of pedagogically appropriate slide <laughs> which I put together and it's going to sort of pop up again at the end um, because I wanted you to bear your own sort of interests and, and potential investigations and research in mind as you listen to what I said. Um, and so this is very much, I'm very, I've become a very process-oriented type of researcher. Um, and so I'm quite, and I'm very interested in how people sort of do the research they do and thinking about methodology. And so this is also driving the questions I put this down here. And I know that many of you, um, because you've all, all of those of you in the MA programme, I believe have a placement, um, an industry placement at some point. So part, this is part of the reason for this question, who is this research for? Of course it's to help you get a degree, but I also wanted you to think about um, do you have another audience in mind? Are you involved in, whether you're involved in working at a publishing house or maybe in a reader development program or with book groups or um, any aspect of um, production dissemination and reception, um, maybe the people involved in that activity are also people for whom you want to do your piece of research. And so that's going to impact on not only maybe what your key research question might be, but how you set about investigating it on your methodology. And also what the end product might look like, because it might look more like a report in some respects. 
um, rather than just a kind of classical academic dissertation. So bear all those things in mind as I, as I go, because this is supposed to help you um, begin to ruminate <laughs> and, and cogitate on these things. Okay, so we've branded ourselves into the, you know, 21st century with this project. So this is our logo and that's our website, um, which is also on the postcard. Uh, this is my uh, research partner. <laughs> this is like Claire's laughing because she knows her quite well. <laughs> and so she's Jane. Um, and she has a, unlike me, she has very swank um, rooms in which she gets to do research. She's a communication scholar by training. I, my original training is in literary studies. And now the work that I do is, looks more like cultural studies, probably. So Danelle gets to do exciting things in these rooms <laughs> in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I get to do have much less exciting accommodations at my home university. And this was us on a research trip. Um, so Danelle's way into this is um, through her own professional pro uh, sort of prior life to academia was in things like market research and marketing. And she's a professional communicator as well as an academic communication scholar. So she's very interested in media, how media interact with each other, how the printed book is positioned within the 21st century um, cultures of digital technologies and other mass media like radio and television. So this is the kind of really short nutshell version of what our project is about. This is our project title. You know, because we're academics, we have to have long titles. Short, no, punchy, punchy title followed by long-winded subtitle is, you know, as you've probably already realised, a convention. Um, and that's it in a nutshell, I'm not going to say read it because I can't stand it when people read their slides. Um, we came up with the object or subject of our study. We had noticed that these things which we decided to call mass reading events were proliferating and that they travelled. They originated in... Um, the United States in Seattle in around 1998 with a, a program called If All Seattle Read the Same Book, not the snappiest of titles, it has to be said. They've since amended it to Seattle Reads, which I think is a bit snappier for publicity. Um, and this was something that came out of the Washington Center of the book and was the brainchild of two women, Chris Agashi and Nancy Pearl who are librarians and redevelopment librarians based there, one of whom, Nancy, has since retired, but she's sort of gone on to become this kind of rock star librarian who, who uh, has a TV show and a radio programme and has produced, all, written all these books which are called things like Booklust and More Booklust, <laughs> which I just think are great titles. Um, I think I might... Oh, I think I've got a... No, I haven't got a slide of that, but anyway. Um, this is our kind of shorthand version of one model that we have been examining in the three different nation states, which is the one but one community model. What interested Danelle and I was this notion that the, if you like, the idea of a book club, which is a fairly privatised um, type of social interaction, which had mainly been happening in the early 20th century in places like libraries, homes and bookstores, although some of you will know historically book clubs have been important parts of social movements, for instance, for African-American women in the 19th century would be a good example of that. Um, the sort of 20, late 20th century, 21st iteration of book groups has been a much more kind of privatised, almost domesticated type of social interaction. 
But suddenly we realized that there was this model, One Book, One Community, that was trying to take the notion of a reading group or a book club and expand it to incorporate as many readers in one city, place, region, or in some cases, an entire American state as possible. And very quickly, that model, which started out in Seattle, got repeated across the United States and sort of moved up into Canada and then came across the Atlantic. We thought that in itself was a kind of interesting transnational um, trajectory. And we were curious about um, which elements got taken up and which didn't and why this kind of idea, this model, should take off at a particular moment in time. And this was actually the place where we did our pilot study back in 2004, which is a place in southern Ontario in uh, Canada. One Book One Chicago is actually the version of the One Book model which really caught most attention and got a lot of national publicity in the States. And also is um, anecdotally the reason that it kind of made it over to the United Kingdom because both the people that organized Bristol's Great Reading Adventure and the uh, executive producer of the BBC's The Big Read, which was on TV a few years back, were holidaying in Chicago when One Book One Chicago ran for the first time. And they thought, oh, that's a really good idea. And then they came back and uh, in one case evolved um, the BBC series The Big Read and in the other decided to actually replicate the One Book One community model in Bristol, which is still going, in fact. Um, so it's sort of Seattle and Chicago kind of vie as the originators of this, but Seattle, strictly speaking, was the first place. But Chicago is the place that really branded it as a, as a way to publicize your city, as a way to um, foreground print culture within your city, and as a sort of generally jolly good idea, which may bridge communities in different parts of the city too. That, those are parts of the imperatives driving the Chicago example. One of the things that's very interesting to us about looking at, at this, these mass reading events is not just um, about why people come together to share reading, but who these events are for in an ideological sense. Um, what kinds of cultural work are they performing and for whom? And um, this picture I like because this is actually the Central Library in Chicago, which is this amazing building. It's like a, I mean, it does, it's like a, um, a hymn to libraries and books, really. It's a very beautiful building, um, very grand. And, you know, we're very interested in the kinds of institutional sites and agencies that get involved in these kinds of one book projects because obviously sometimes there are very particular ideological agenda attached to libraries being involved, cities putting up money, um, other maybe more less formal agencies being in part of these um, organizations such as maybe newspapers or community, particularly community activist groups which occurs in some places. But also when you're doing um, your own research, as I said earlier, you may feel that in addition to doing a piece of academic research, there is something you, a question you want to answer for a particular agency or community that you are involved with as a practitioner. And certainly we've always been concerned that we would give something back to the people that helped us with our research, which is often the organizers of these events. And so there is a kind of research imperative for us around trying to come up with some recommendations which may in some ways ultimately influence cultural policy in the 
any of the three nation states that we work. And the way that we have tried to disseminate that is partly through writing white papers, which we're actually horribly behind with. Um, this is where Danelle's previous life as a market research person comes in. She's really good at that kind of thing. And also because we have acted as consultants to various groups of people in a sort of informal way, um, including the reading agency, actually, in this country. So a different, I talked about the one but one community model briefly. Um, we decided that we were rather ambitiously going to look at 10 different examples of mass reading events in three countries. So, you know, this is also the danger of dreaming up a big project on a very sunny day under the influence of red wine, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> is maybe not to be recommended. So we thought big, we just decided, okay, what if... We, money was no object, we could do this in the way, whatever scale we wanted and in the way we would do it best. And, and then we just went for broke, really. And um, one of the things um, that we were interested in was not just, if you like, those on the ground, one but one community, physically getting people together type um, mass reading events, but also things like the BBC's Big Read, which although isn't in, isn't in our project, was an example of a, if you like, of a mass-mediated version of um, a reading community. And the thing that had really caught our attention, even before the BBC's uh, Big Read was broadcast, was something that happened in Canada called Canada Reads, which actually is broadcast through uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Radio 1 um, channel. And it's still running. and. That was really kind of the starting point. It was a sort of the kernel of the whole idea for us um, because we both um, knew about um, something about kind of Canadian literary culture. And so we've got two examples in our project of these kinds of, if you like, mass-mediated events, this and also Richard and Judy's book club, which we did some work on earlier this year. So this is just another aspect of... Um, Canada Reads and some of these other events that we were interested in thinking about was the m way that they use multiple platforms, which in fact, in a way, they underutilize under on the whole multiple platforms like the internet. But Canada Reads is probably, and Rich and Judy's Book Club are probably more successful at trying to um, do that kind of cross-media platform presentation of their um, work than some of the other things that we've looked at. But again, this is where if you like, Danelle's interest as a media communication scholar come in because she's very, very interested in that sort of the relationships between different kinds of media. So we actually have a ridiculously long list of research questions. Um, I always say it boils down to this first one. That was really our key one. And these are maybe three of the key sub-questions. And there are a whole bunch of others um, which we... Uh, help determine or shape the methods that we used. So one of the things that's really key here is that we thought about reading and shared reading as a social practice. We are not so interested in it as a hermeneutic or meaning-making practice, although we are interested in that. Um, but we're certainly, our research methods are semi-successful at capturing that kind of meaning-making process. But um, we are very interested in it as a shared kind of social interaction and what happens in and around people sharing reading together, either coming together physically to do that or doing it through the internet and other kinds of um, ways of gathering people. 
So our main emphasis is not so much on interpretive practices of reading as on the social practice of reading. Um, but these two things are not divorced from each other. Um, that tells you something about how we conceptualised it from the beginning and why our questions look the way that they do. So that's also something to think about, really. What, you, what do you mean? If you're doing, you know, if you choose something um, for your project, try and have a think about what do you really mean by that word, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about, um, I don't know, serial fiction publishing or something, what do you think that looks like? <laughs> and um, what do you understand by that practice and maybe by that genre as well? Now, that starts to make your kind of wheels turn in terms of, well, how best might I investigate it? So then you have to start thinking about how you're going to do it. And so, you know, because we were going for broke and we decided to be crazy, really. And also because Danelle's background is social science minus humanities. And we very much, we're very committed to interdisciplinary kinds of work. But we're also very interested in how you bring together empirical methods with textual methodologies. So we decided we were just going to, we were going to do this very sort of multi-layered type mode of investigation and so we've been doing all of these things it's a little manic let's put it that way um, we use some tools which are like these two software programs this is actually SPSS's data crunching quantitative program it's a bit of a bear actually I have to say um, and I have stayed largely away from it I have other people do that um, this I've got a nice slide of later, you can see what it looks like. Um, the other things are, I had been involved in interviewing work before, so I had already kind of slipped sideways into being a kind of pseudo-sociologist of culture, really. Um, so I was quite comfortable with the interviewing part, but maybe less um, competent or, or confident with um, the notion of collecting data, quantitative data through an online questionnaire, which is something that we ran in every site. And now we're still, we're having to manage this kind of vast amount of material data that we've got and make sense of it. So this is a sort of ridiculously over-the-top version of a methodology, really, because it's a mi what was, what's known as mixed-method research. Um, and, you know, you will not have to do as many different things as that, but it's just there to say, you can do more than one way of investigating whatever it is you want to look into. And in fact, <clears throat> that can actually make for you, bring you some very rich kind of um, materials and data if you do choose to investigate your topic using a couple of different methods. So because it's so huge, we have lots of people working on it. So um, this is the, the sort of hacker pictures. Um, this is us in our research office at Birmingham. <laughs> And uh, this is Anouk, who is the postdoctoral research fellow who works on the project full-time. She also has a background training in literary studies, but luckily for us, she's also very interested and in good with computers, otherwise we'd be really hooped. And this is Anna Burrells, who's actually doing a PhD in the English department at Birmingham, who is the part-time administrative assistant. And then we have employed a lot of other people temporarily translators, transcribers, people to work on data, all kinds of things, because that's really the only way you can project manage something this huge. 
So this is just a list to show you that, again, I, know I mentioned we picked 10 different examples in three nation states. Um, one of, again, what to think of if you're kind of doing a kind of case study type project, you have to have a think about uh, the rationale for choosing the examples you do, the case studies that you do. Do you want to compare two different versions of the same um, phenomenon? Or are you just going to focus in on one? Um, which is a perfectly valid approach. Our decisions were partly um, generated by our knowledge of literary and print cultures in these particular locations. Um, between us, we've managed to get educated in those three countries and, so, and do research in those three countries. So we, and that also helped us. And we also chose things like the Chicago and Seattle examples because they're so important in the, if you like, the history of this, recent history of this cultural phenomenon of the mass reading event. So that's, that's there by way of explaining it. And actually that's pretty much, that is the chronological order in which we did our field work, which actually we managed to finish at the end of May this year. So one aspect of that coming up the issue of mass reading events from different angles using different methodologies is that we're not only interested in the actual readers who do or do not participate in mass reading events but we're also very interested in the cultural workers the people who initiate innovate and organize the events and i've actually become really very very interested in cultural workers and what the labor of cultural work means um, so this slide is really here by way of showing you some images of, from Bristol, but also some of the people that were involved in the 2006 version of the um, Great Reading Adventure. So, I mean, that's another, if you like, possibility that you can think about is the actual individuals or groups of individuals that may be involved in a different aspect of um, book production or dissemination. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be about, if you like, the the firm or the company or the institution that those people are attached to as such as you may actually find that there are some very fascinating and interesting individuals who have been kind of innovators or creative thinkers in their practice that you want to kind of investigate if you like. Um, yeah, so here's another example, example people um, who involved as sort of education type specialists in these projects. Um, teachers, librarians, city councillors, uh, bookstore uh, owners, all sorts of people involved with books and promoting books um, for various ends are really caught up in organising these projects. And uh, these are the rather fab teacher librarians who work at the Kenwood Academy High School in um, Chicago, just quite close to the University of Chicago, actually. And they actually run a teen book group <clears throat> which every year reads the selections, the one book one, Chicago selections. So we, we thought about and investigated the organization of the events, the cultural workers, the institutions that are, that are caught up in the, in the events, but also the readers themselves. And in some cases, that means we have visited and interviewed extant or existing reading groups that decide to participate in one book one community or whichever kind of program, Canada Reads, Richard and Judy's Book Club, by reading the books as part of their regular meetings. So this is an example of that. And it's also because we were interested in 
whether you know investigating what types of communities exist around texts and does something like one but one community create new communities of readers um, which actually largely I think probably they don't that's that's my own my simple answer to that question um, but anyway it's been very interesting to talk to different kinds of people, both those who are in book groups which have established rules of interaction and interpretive ways of reading already, versus people who maybe in a more ad hoc way are attracted to one book one community and become part of a much more ephemeral type of reading community that maybe only meets once or twice um, in the course of the program, the program running. Um, this is just here, I think, because, odd, well, oddly for us, Chicago, after having chosen lots of classic American books um, for the, the time when we went back to do our field work, which was October 2005, picked Pride and Prejudice, which actually we were a bit bummed out about. <laughs> but, but then it turned out to be incredibly fascinating because, of course, you know, it was this great British canonical text, and people had all kinds of difficulties with it, reading it. And I actually found that as somebody coming from literary studies originally, really fascinating. And I was very interested in the ways, and this is where I was very interested in interpretive strategies, in the different ways that people coped with the text that they found really quite alienating. You know, they didn't understand the historical context. There was difficult vocabulary. The edition they were given um, free, because Chicago gives out a lot of free books during One Book, One Community, had no notes in it and no glossary which was a bit of a disaster, really. So um, it proved to be really difficult. And people had all sorts of really creative strategies for getting around their problems. One group of teenagers had gone to the downtown library that you saw on the earlier slide, borrowed a CD, and listened to the audio for it as a way of trying to get themselves into what the language sounded like and, and sort of give themselves a better chance of comprehending it. Um, other people had gone and watched um, the TV, you know, tele BBC televised version or some of the old films and actually then sort of related back to the book, you know, the scenes that they had, had really engaged them in the visual versions. And there were all sorts of other sort of curious ways in which people had um, used versions in other medias and adaptations to help them um, evolve reading strategies that worked for them for the printed book and I found that very interesting and also particularly because um, not so much in the kind of field that Claire Jane and I work in where we're, we've, we tend to give readers quite a lot of agency but certainly coming from literary studies where people can be quite rude actually about non-professional readers um, I'm, I'm, one of my great missions is to try and convince literary studies people that you know non-professional readers have very um, creative and innovative and intelligent ways of making sense of texts and those way things don't necessarily look like the way we teach people to do literary textual analysis. So here they are, this is the Kenwood Academy High Team Book Club and I always like the, showing this slide because we had such a fun time with them and, um, and they uh, facilitate their own group and so two of these young, two of the young women actually led the group through Pride and Prejudice. And again, they'd had all kinds of problems with it. But then they ended up having this very interesting discussion, very feminist discussion about the gender politics of Pride and Prejudice. And they sort of related it back to um, things that happened in their own school 
and and they completely got actually the all the sort of difficulties around um, appearance, around um, marrying somebody who is of a class above you, and the difficulties that that might bring about of um, being on the marriage market. You know, they they sort of got all of that, and they sort of got there by thinking about um, things like uh, being a look judging people on the basis of which brands of clothes they wore and, and stuff like that. So they had this very a way in which they managed to contextualize this book that they found really difficult, really alien, nothing to do with their world, really, um, back into, the, into their everyday lives. And I, I found that was very, really uh, intriguing. Um, I, mean, I mean, they didn't like it too, and they were very hesitant to say so. And then we said to them, it's okay, you can say whatever you like. And then they went, Oh, this book really sucked. You know, they were just like they just like couldn't finish it. It was so difficult, all this kind of thing. But then, you know, actually, they were inter they were interested in some of the issues it raised, and a lot of them said, "Well, I will go back and have another go at it." Um, I know I, I have to kind of probably speed up a bit. I mentioned about institutions, and one of the interesting things that happened in the course of us doing our field work was what the National Endowment for the Arts, which is the, uh, what the acronym NEA stands for, which is in the United States, seized upon the one book, one community model as a kind of quick fix for um, what, what had been revealed in a report called Reading at Risk in June 2004 as the decline in the reading of literary fiction in the United States of America. And <clears throat> there was a, a lot of publicity around that report, and it was all sort of doom and gloom, you know, i.e. the decline of re the reading of literary fiction means the disintegration of um, civilization in the United States. And isn't it terrible that people are standing around talking about desperate housewives instead of um, to kill a mockingbird and things like that? So <clears throat> there is a very moral, there's a real moral kind of imperative caught up in the rhetoric of the National Endowment for Arts around what reading can do in terms of um, not just educating the population, but sort of moral uplift, if you like. So it's almost a Matthew Arnold type sense of, you know, civilizing the masses almost. Um, and, it's, and it's very naked. If you look at their website, you know, that rhetoric is really explicit. So we thought, this is great. So we, had, so, so we actually, so off we trooped to Washington and um, interviewed people at the National Endowment for the Arts who actually, of course, turned out to be perfectly nice individuals. And I actually wanted to think of them as the big bad enemy and then realized that, you know, there they were. They were pretty much like me and they'd had the same kind of education that I'd had. And, you know, I was just as complicit on all these ideological agenda as they were, really. But this is actually um, some scenes more from the center of the book. And this is John Cole, who looks like a very benign individual, but actually is a bit subversive. <laughs> and I love him. And this is his wall of book culture. And um, I just like to, I, what I'd really like to do is just go and spend about two weeks in John's office and do a sort of discourse analysis and analysis of his wall. Because all of the stuff on that wall is things that have been sent by different programs run by different centers for the book across the United States of America. And he sort of collects it all and displays it. Um, so they are not, the center of the book um, in Washington is not directly um, sponsoring the one book model, but he certainly had a very interesting take on it. And they are of an agent that's very active in the promotion of book cultures in the United States. 
this is a rather opposite end of the of the example because one of the programs that received money from the NEA funding was a, a community in Huntsville, Alabama, in the in North Alabama, so southern states, um, and they had actually been running one but one community with, with no money, and then suddenly there was this opportunity to get a grant and they got it. But it's a very interesting place because um, it's got the highest literary rates in the state, but it's also got this huge military base. So it really is like the military industrial complex, it's like a whole corner of the town you can't go in. And in fact, when we went back to do our field work, we wanted to meet a group, a class that met on the arsenal, but we couldn't go onto the arsenal because I'm not an American citizen. Danelle is, but I'm not. And so we had to meet them in a library outside of this place because, you know, I might be a spy. And I might, <laughs> I might go back and tell people what's going on there. So this was a very, for me, a very fascinating place to go, but also because I've always been interested in um, the southern United States and a very particular regional culture. And I'm getting to the end now. I'm pretty sure I'm getting to the end. This is just a funny one. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> um, also because I'm trying to, like, put my one little bit about self-positioning. Um, because I'm, I kind of work within a frame of feminist standpoint epistemology, which is very much about um, not imposing theory on your research and trying to evolve it fairly organically and take clues for your analysis from the um, people, your interview subjects and the kind of material that you gather and then sort of evolve analysis and theory from that but kind of go backwards and forwards if you like between theory and data. But another important aspect of it is kind of your own self-positioning and awareness of um, your levels of identification with your research subjects, which, as I sort of alluded to with the people at the NEA, was rather more than I expected it to be, which was slightly unsettling. Um, but it's also, I find, the kind of ethnographic type work we do really quite tiring. So this was, this is me looking really fed up. And uh, we had to go to yet another participant observation thing and hear an author read the same thing for like the third time around, but it was in a different context, so we were going for that. Um, and yeah, this was like the fun stuff we get to do sometimes on our research projects. So this is at the Grand Old Opry where lots of people like Johnny Cash and very famous people have uh, sung. So that was kind of the fun bit of that trip. <laughs> Um, I mentioned that we were using some various kinds of software. Envivo is simply something which is in a computer, but is effectively, my analogy for it is it's like taking a bunch of colored highlighter pens to an interview transcript and, um, you know, coding them, you know, having yellow for somebody talking about um, fantasy fiction and having red for somebody talking about their book group. Um, and, and using those colours throughout a series of transcripts. This enables you to do it on a computer. It actually, the new version looks different from this, um, but what it then means is that you can, you can sort of pull up all the bits that you've coded across a whole range of um, transcripts that talk about pleasure, for example, which is one of the examples there, which makes, when you've done a lot of this kind of work, we've got so many, so much data, you've got to have some way of managing it. So that's one of our strategies. Um, this is some stuff we found out from our online questionnaire, um, although I have to say that I think that's coming from one data set and now we've got like 10 data sets. So Danelle's in the process of running all sorts of queries on our data as we speak. Um, and you'll see that 
it's quite interesting, and I think this is probably going to hold true for quite a lot of them, that being encouraged to read books you wouldn't normally pick it seems to be a really strong motivational factor for a lot of people who participate in these kinds of things. Um, I, I would say that even though learning about authors appears quite low down, apparently on here, that actually gets talked about a lot in the focus groups we've run because people, you know, contrary to theorists who like to talk about the author not being important and dead and all the rest of it, um, real readers, as I like to call them, um, are endlessly fascinated about, not so much always about authors' lives, they don't always want to read biographically, but they are really interested in process, they're really interested in how did, you know, what research did you do, how did you come up with this idea, what was it like writing this book, those are the kinds of questions they come up with at the sort of author type events that we've been to, and that I think is quite interesting. I think it's also quite significant and interesting that publishers came comes high up on when we run the data and a lot of our data sets. People, and certainly when we've done focus groups, a lot of readers are much more savvy about publishing and publicity and the whole process of marketing bestsellers than you might think. Well, at least more than I thought people would be. Um, the particularly interesting in this regard is the the uh, research we did on Richard and Judy's book club where we met with huge amounts of scepticism about um, what Richard and Judy were up to. Were they earning money from the publishers for this? Did the publishers pay to have their books get selected? Um, you know, and, and we're really, you know, and oh goodness, isn't it? it's all branded you know, to death, isn't it? You know, lots of scepticism about the process, the publishing process, and what the motivations might be, and who was benefiting from it, and was it just a big commercial operation? Um, <laughs> that was the, the the case study, if you like, in which that came out most strongly, that kind of scepticism, if you like, about the publishing industry and the whole the involvement of media in it. That's just a picture of our website, which you can go and have a look at. When you do the quantitative stuff, it enables you to do things like this, which are very strange for me as somebody that started off in humanities, but sort of a quite fun, really. Um, and then this is the last slide. This is back to my things I started out with and uh, with a little bit of glossing um, in terms of why I think it's important to kind of think about those things in relation to a project. Mm -hmm.